Let us remain standing for the reading of the Holy Scripture. Today we read from Luke 23, verses 32 through 43. Two others also, who were criminals, were led away to be put to death with him. When they came to the place that is called the Skull, they crucified Jesus there with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots to divide his clothing. And the people stood by watching, but the leaders scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Messiah of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged there kept deriding him and saying, Are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed have been condemned justly, for we are getting what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He replied, Truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Jim, for reading our lesson this morning. And to each of you, uh, greetings in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's so wonderful to begin Uh, this Palm Passion Sunday with each of you on this beautiful Sabbath day, and we look forward to the week of worship and fellowship opportunities that we have. I want to begin, first of all, by thanking Dana Orange in particular and 442 of you uh, in specific who were here yesterday for the Rise Against Hunger. Uh, Together, you packed 100,000 meals yesterday. And so over the last five years, it's been our honor and privilege as a church to prepare over a half million meals, 600,000 meals that you have done And we are so grateful to you and for the funding that you made possible for that, $32,000 that was raised for that event yesterday. And people of all ages were here yesterday from about 3 to 83 and above, and it was just a marvelous event, and we're grateful uh, to all of you. Well, this morning we come to the end of this series that we've referred to as cross-training. And what we've been doing over the last five weeks is we've been thinking together about the impact of the passion, the cross, on those who were closest to Jesus during that first Holy Week. We mentioned Simon of Cyrene, an African Jew from Libya, who somehow in the celebration of the Passover got caught up in the congestion of the Via Dolorosa and felt the tap of the spear, the Roman spear on his back, calling him into service to carry another man's cross. And this man, who seemed to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, turns out he was in the right place at the right time. 
We talked about Judas who betrayed Jesus with a kiss in the place where they prayed. Judas apparently trying to manipulate Jesus to force Jesus into some kind of political revolution. And then Peter who denied Jesus three times in Caiaphas' courtyard. He was following Jesus at a distance and that never works out very well. And when the cock crowed, he wept bitterly in that garden. The women, we talked about the women who stuck with Jesus thick and thin to the bitter end. And finally, last week, we reminisced about Pontius Pilate, who in his effort to keep the peace, as was the governor's role, he caved in to the political pressure of the crowd, and he handed Jesus over to be crucified. According to the text, Jim, that you've read for us in Luke 23 today, Jesus did not die by himself. There were two others who suffered a similar situation. Criminals, Luke calls them, malefactors or evildoers is the translation, or good-for-nothings is a proper translation. Their presence at Golgotha that day is actually a fulfillment of the suffering servant song written seven centuries before these events happened by Isaiah chapter 53 verse 12, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And so these rebels with whom Jesus is now dying are somewhat similar to some of the people with whom Jesus lived. Their bios, we don't know, I wish we did. The extent of their crimes is unclear, but their punishment marks them as enemies of the Roman state. They were rebels, they were revolutionaries, they were zealots. And all four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all together agree that on that Good Friday, there were three crosses on that hill, which we refer to as the skull. Luke, by the way, is the only one of the four that details the last words of these condemned men. I don't know about you, but I've always been intrigued by famous last words, haven't you? I was reading some of them the other day, historical figures, last words like et tu, Brute, Julius Caesar. I am not in the least afraid to die, said Charles Darwin. It is very beautiful over there, Thomas Edison. I am bored with it all, Winston Churchill. Swing low, sweet chariot, Harriet Tubman. I should never have switched from scotch to martinis, Humphrey Bogart. What do you mean you didn't see that double dribble, Bruce Pearl? Too soon? Yeah, probably. Famous last words. All combined in the four Gospels, they tell us that Jesus uttered seven last words, but only three of them are found in Dr. Luke's Gospel. And I know it's a shocker to you, but all three words in Luke's Gospel are prayers. It makes sense for those of you who know Luke's Gospel because he accents, he's always highlighting prayer. Luke is clear, more so than the other writers, that the key to the power of Jesus' ministry was in his prayer life. 
And here is Jesus on the center cross, dying just like he lived, with a prayer on his lips. Three prayers. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's a prayer of intercession for the very ones who nailed him. Into thy hands I commit my spirit. That's like a bedtime prayer. Like now I lay me down to sleep. It's a personal prayer of committal. And then today you will be with me in paradise. That was an answer to another person's prayer. I think sometimes I make the mistake in the rush of Holy Week and all the push and shove of this week that we focus only on the last words of Jesus as well we should and will on Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday. But this morning, I want to call your attention to the last words of the two bandits who died on either side of Jesus. Luke says that one of those thieves actually joined with the crowd in reviling Jesus. It's interesting when you read Luke 23, the phases of derision in that scene. The religious leaders scoff. Literally, they thumb their noses at Jesus. The soldiers, on the other hand, mock Jesus. They make sport of him. And one of those thugs derides Jesus. In other words, the word for derision in the Greek language, it means he insulted Jesus. He cursed him. He actually blasphemed him. Are you not the Messiah, he said, then save yourself and us. Now, you expect that kind of talk from the mob, don't you? But you don't really expect it from one who's in the same fix, of one who's suffering in the same boat that's now insulting Jesus. I don't know about you, but that, that whole business is disturbing to me. Most of the time, you expect solidarity between people who have a common plight. I mean, that's really what support groups are all about, right? Shared suffering. Don Meyer, who was the great coach of basketball at Lipscomb for a number of years, said, Share suffering, shared suffering creates team. Casey Alexander, who is the son of Don and Joan, took Lipscomb all the way to the NIT final. He understands also what Don taught him, that shared suffering creates a bond. If you've ever been to AA, I don't have to tell you that. You ever been to a recovery group or Al-Anon, you know the tone. The meeting is anything but derisive. It's anything but judgmental and condemning. In fact, it's the opposite to the contrary. It's compassionate. It's empathetic. It's encouraging. It's the same thing in any support group, and we have so many. Divorce care, grief support, Stephen ministry, cancer support. There's this deep kinship between people who have a common need. I've visited hospice. You've been to hospice before, a live hospice. And I have never seen a terminal patient in one of the end rooms scorning his or her roommate. You, you won't find that because they're not enemies. They're like family because there's this unique and undeniable bond in people who share a common illness or prognosis. But this guy, 
He's, he's mirroring the crowds, what he's doing. He's repeating what others are saying. He's mimicking Jesus. And in verse 39, he keeps on. This is repeatedly. He kept on deriding Jesus. And when I read that, it's absolutely unthinkable to me. I mean, how could he? And then it occurs to me, I know how he could. It's the pain talking. Have you ever been there? Sometimes there is a hurt within folk that is so deep. There's a pain that's so raw that it just comes out when you least expect it. It speaks on your behalf. You don't intend it to, but you can't hide it. You can't control it. It just pops out because there's a scar maybe that's never healed. There's a wound that's never been cured. And it takes very little to trip the trigger to reopen that wound and anger and resentment. You don't know where it comes from, just spews, mingled out. I remember something. Jesus taught a pretty important lesson one day. It's in the Sermon on the Mount where he said, you've heard it said, don't murder. And anyone who kills is subject to judgment. But I say to you, Whoever is angry with a sister or brother, you will be subject to judgment. I'm going to preach a series of sermons in July called Things I Wish Jesus Had Never Said, and that's one of them. One philosopher said it like this, you will not be punished for your anger, but by your anger. There's a lot of truth to that. Someone once said that anger, bitterness is like drinking poison and hoping someone else will die. What it does to us is a concern. It's the pain talking. It's interesting that Jesus doesn't respond to that dying thief. You notice that? He doesn't say a word in response. He hears, he's listening, but he doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't reprimand him. He doesn't scold him. He just listens, and there's an important lesson there. The book of Psalms seems to encourage the honest lament. Did you know that one-third of the book of Psalms, they are prayers of anguish? Uh, Like, why me? How long? What purpose does this serve? When will it end? When will it pass? And Jesus hears. Anne Lamott, one of my favorite authors, said it like this, nothing heals like letting people know our scariest parts. When people listen to you and listen to your cry and lament and look at you with love, it's like they're holding the child of you. It's a pain talking. And Jesus listens. In a way, I kind of sympathize with that dying thief, with his lamentation, because I'm thinking to myself, you know, Jesus, if you really are, (laughs) if you're the Messiah, if you're the Christ, the one we've been waiting for, then why don't you do something? Have you ever felt that way in some difficult moment? If you've got the power, then why not end the suffering? Why not put a stop to the pain, the injustice? Why not show them who's boss and make them pay? And this dying thief, just like the crowd, sees the suffering and death of Jesus 
as a denial of Jesus' vocation. He heard the prayer of forgiveness, just like we did this morning, and he was outraged because for this man, mercy is weakness. It's not strength. Forgiveness is complacency. It's not taking control. We live in a world like that where real muscle is survival of the fittest, self-preservation in a dog-eat-dog world like ours. Power is retribution. It's getting even. It's retaliation. It's payback, vengeance. And yet, have you ever noticed that sometimes restraining vengeance takes more strength than unleashing it? I mean, think about it. Which would have been easier for Jesus to say, Father, forgive them, or Father, forget them? Save yourself and us, he said. What that really means is, get me out of this hellhole. It's the pain talking. And yet what I want you to notice is that Jesus' unwillingness to save himself doesn't keep him from saving others. Indeed, in his dying moments, watch what Jesus does. In his dying moments, he pronounces forgiveness and he promises paradise. By refusing to save himself, he actually saved the whole crowd. And that's so Jesus. That's just like Jesus. I've noticed in 36 years of ministry that sometimes in our pain, we turn on Jesus rather than turning to Jesus. One turns on Jesus, but the other thief turns to Jesus. I want you to listen to what the other thief said in his last words. He begins by taking up for Jesus. He begins by rebuking his comrade. Don't you fear God? Since you're under the same sentence of condemnation, we're getting what we deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. What's he doing? He's actually confessing his sin. You see what's happening? He's repenting. This guy's not playing the victim. He's not alibying himself. He's pleading guilty. And at the same time, he's professing his faith. You see it in the last words. He doesn't say, Jesus, get me out of this. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, I want you to notice two things about those last words. This guy is the only one in the Passion account who refers to Jesus by name. Up to this point, the only ones, really, most of the time, who call Jesus by name are demoniacs and sick folk. Have you ever discovered that hurting people are on a first-name basis with Jesus? Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's a confession of faith. You know why? Because to say that Jesus has a kingdom is to say that Jesus is a king. It's a confession of faith. <laughs> this repentant thief then 
at Golgotha, at the skull-shaped hill, becomes the first person to recognize that Jesus' suffering and death is not a contradiction of his kingship, it's a precursor to his enthronement. And he gets it. And at the end of the story, there's a Roman centurion who will get it too. And then check out Jesus' reply. Today, you will be with me in paradise. He didn't say someday. He didn't say in the great beyond. He didn't say in the parousia. He didn't say in the eschaton, the end time. He didn't say in the sweet by and by. He said today. Now is the acceptable hour. This is the day of salvation, not someday, not any day, today. Will Williman was in town a couple of weeks ago, retired bishop from the Alabama Conference, and before that, Dr. Williman was the dean of chapel at Duke University. He preached at West End. He told of an encounter that he once had with a dying woman. He said, it was when I was at Duke, I was visiting in the hospital. She was in the last stages of lung cancer. It was obvious that she was in difficult shape, great pain, and she was weary of fighting. He said, every day she held in her hand a crucifix that was a gift from her grandmother when she was just a little girl that apparently was carved by a monk in Europe. And that was a symbol of all that she believed and held on to. Will said, one afternoon I entered the room and I could see that she was near the end and observing that she was Catholic, I asked her, uh, would, you like, would you like for me to get you a priest? And she held out that crucifix with the figure of Jesus and she said, no thanks, I already have one. And so do I. And so do you. What the man on the center tree did for that penitent thief, he will do for you. He will do for me today. Not someday. Today. Isaac Watts got it right. In the 18th century, when he wrote these words of gratitude, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small, Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all, today. In Jesus' name, amen.